Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Discovery. Time flies when you're learning super cool stuff. I'm Nate. And I'm Callie. If you're dropping in for the first time, welcome to Curiosity, where we aim to blow your mind by helping you to grow your mind. If you're a loyal listener, welcome back. Today, we have an extra special episode where we talk to Dan Shackner about this year's Puppy Bowl. <laughs> then, then we'll learn about the truths and myths of spontaneous human combustion and how cancer deaths in the U.S. have gone down 33% since the 90s. Without further ado, let's satisfy some curiosity. Hey everyone! So, like we said in the intro, we had the opportunity to chat with somebody who has been described as having the best job of all time, Mr. Dan Shackner. Dan is the official, wait for it, referee of this year's Puppy Bowl. If you're not familiar, the Puppy Bowl is like the Super Bowl, but way cuter and the stakes are way higher. Dan talked to us about the chaos of working with so many puppies, how the Puppy Bowl supports special needs dogs, and his tips for keeping all those cuties in line. (laughs) Enjoy our interview with Dan Shackner, and don't forget to watch the Puppy Bowl this Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern on Animal Planet. All right, so Dan, we love how the Puppy Bowl includes and supports special needs dogs. So I'm wondering, what are some innovations you've seen with dogs that are differently abled out in the Puppy Bowl field? Innovations that dogs have taken on? Well, wheelchairs have been around for years. We've just only started to incorporate special needs dogs about four years ago. I guess the innovation that would be considered something new for us is dogs on wheels. But again, we've had dogs in wheelchairs. I mean, that's been a thing in reality for for decades. But um, we haven't seen them in Puppy Bowl until about four years ago. This year, look out for Joey. He's a little uh, chihuahua, brown chihuahua mix. He was born without front legs and rescued. And really, it's incredible how quick he is on the wheelchair. So look out for him. He's one of 11 special needs dogs that we have in this year's Puppy Bowl. And generally, because of his wheels, he is the fastest. That's fantastic. <laughs> okay, can you can you tell us a little bit more about Joey? Like, what are the accommodations and how, how does he interact with the other dogs? He's awesome. I mean, we don't treat them any different other than every safety is paramount. We have vet techs, we have humane reps, we have everybody, a hundred person crew is there to make sure that every single one of our puppy players are safe. Um, and it's no different with, with dogs that have special needs. So as far as his play on the field, He's not treated any different from any other athlete. If he makes a penalty, you know, if there's a foul, he's going to get a penalty called and set back five inches on the on the on the field. If he uh, scores a touchdown, he'll get celebrated with and cuddled with. This is often the, you know the pattern after every touchdown, and he gets his own you know starting lineup. Big call, and um, he's going to get, of course, his adoption rescue posted up there on on the screen for everyone to see. Um, I have a feeling he will probably get adopted within minutes of Puppy Bowl airing. Because again, when you have a couple mil people watching, you know it's not e- it's not so hard to get those those uh, puppies adopted. It's often a little harder to get their siblings or even harder their parents adopted. So our goal is actually bigger than the show itself. So I'm a little bit curious then. Over the years of your Puppy Bowl career, uh, you know, you're talking a lot about these special needs dogs. What is probably the most hard hitting special needs pup story that sticks with you? We've always had dogs that, you know, might might have a slight issue as part of Puppy Bowl in our 19 years. But we didn't highlight them as special needs dogs till about four years ago. Three years ago, Puppy Bowl 15, it would be, in 2019, I can think of Bumble, who is this beautiful black and white fluff ball who was sight and hearing impaired. 
which wow. means not fully blind, not fully deaf, but real close on both sides. So obviously we had a little bit of extra care when he was on the field. Normally we'll have six dogs on there, but we kind of, you know, scaled that down to two or three uh, for his safety. But bless him, he was able to score touchdown after touchdown. In fact, to this day, he's our highest scoring special needs dog. <laughs> um, and this is the icing on the cake, but really the best part of the story. He was voted MVP. And for those who may not know, the most valuable pup is actually an ongoing voting process throughout Puppy Bowl. So um, America votes, you know, we have our candidates up there. It's usually the ones that are scoring the most, but not always. Sometimes it's the wallflowers, the ones who are napping on the sidelines, <laughs> siesta on the 16, slumbering <laughs> on the sidelines. Those are all the penalty calls for those guys. Illegal napping is very famous and, oh, and happens more often than you think. But classic. usually it's the ones that are scoring touchdowns that are eligible for MVP and Bumble. His votes went up and up and up. And by the end of Puppy Bowl, he was the legitimate MVP as voted on by America. So to be able to crown an, you know, a special needs dog and MVP was really, really incredible. I guess I lied when I said that was the happiest part. The happiest part is he was adopted right away. Yeah. So it was like bonus, bonus, bonus. You know, he's in the Puppy Bowl. He's scoring a bunch of touchdowns. He gets MVP and he gets a forever home. So pretty good feel, feel good story all around. With Puppy Bowl, you have over 100 puppies in the mix. And I got to ask, because this is a science podcast, by any chance, is your approach to working with the dogs, you know, using your mind or is this really all just heart? Well, no, it's more technical in all honesty than you would think. I can't really get emotional, uh, A, because I will adopt them all if I want to, <laughs> um, B, because I am still in the persona of referee and game official. And in this case, it's, you know, exceedingly hard because I'm the only official in the game. Um Obviously, since it is a big television production, we have help, right? We've got a big control room where there's a director who's got a ton of screens that can see all the action going on. I do have an earpiece. So if I miss something behind me, which is inevitable, you know, I'm going to have somebody in my ear saying, hey, check out, there's a field goal. Someone just kicked a field goal. And yes, puppies can kick balls. <laughs> um, we discovered that in Puppy Bowl 11 with Shyla. They, um, they'll let me know. So I, I really don't miss anything, including, you know, all the fouls and penalties. So as far as what my approach... 122 dogs, you're right, in this year's Puppy Bowl, it's our most amount ever, representing 67 different shelters across 34 states and one international, uh, one country, um, the island of Dominica in the Caribbean. It's pretty great. So, yeah, my approach is the same. Again, like I was saying earlier, nothing different for special needs dogs, small dogs, large dogs, rambunctious dogs, sleepy dogs. Um, it's all essentially the same. I am really looking out for touchdowns, you know, field goals, um, any egregious penalties, because you can't call every penalty you see. You'll never go on with Puppy Bowl. And uh, just for everyone to be safe and have a good time. That is amazing. Cool. Okay. Are there any tips or tricks for working with so many puppies, with so many young dogs? Well, let's let's remember, for those for the uninitiated, um, Puppy Bowl does not have 100, all 100 dogs on at the same time. Okay. Um, I mean, in my dream, uh, that would be amazing. <laughs> a real football field, <laughs> the true 100 yards. But uh, the dimensions of our field are quite small. They're about one-tenth the size of a real football field. So um, what we have is between six and eight players. I would say no more than eight ever on at once. And the goal there, besides safety and size and space, is to showcase as many different breeds um, as possible. First quarter, we start with a smaller breed. So that's where you'll see your French bulldogs and, you know, your mini poodles, etc. And then we'll move on through the quarters. By the time we get to the fourth quarter, it's our baby Great Danes, our baby sheep dogs. And and um, they're still puppies, but they're, you know, they actually start to come up to my, to my legs. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's kind of how we break it down. So when they're all on, my approach is only ever at 
you know, dealing with six to eight dogs at once. The trick is when they get rotated in and out and just remembering their names, um, the teams are easy. They're wearing their bandanas, Team Rough and Team Fluff. Fluff is blue, Rough is orange. Uh, keeping score, thankfully, we have a scorekeeper. Um, the scoreboard is powered by a hamster running on a wheel. So we have pretty, you know, this is a science podcast. There's real <laughs> electricity being generated there for those, <laughs> for those guys who are working on those school science projects. Um, but it's pretty cool. And uh, nothing much changes other than my pants, which need to be changed uh, from time to time. Because when there's, you know, the first three feet of your height is uh, puppies doing what puppies do. And yes, you can use your imagination. Anything that, that pup, untrained puppies can do, they shall do. I have, uh, you know, I need to change my pants pretty regularly. <laughs> I guess that's fair. Uh, is there anything that would surprise you know, the viewers of the Puppy Bowl about working with these groups of dogs? Yes. Uh, I mean, I can go off in different areas. Um, if you're into like dogs, right? Uh, the greatest thing for me about Puppy Bowl, besides, of course, the fact that they all get adopted by the time we finish airing, is that people often think because they're rescue dogs, they've got problems or they're unadoptable or they can't find a pure breed, for example, like someone really wants a dachshund and they think, well, I'm not going to go to a shelter because there's no, and we're here to tell you, I mean, just watch us. Um, we don't make any special moves to try to get pure breeds, but we're here to tell you that you can find a purebred dog that's a rescue just as easily as you could elsewhere. That's probably a surprise again to the uninitiated or people who are watching puppy bull for the first time. They're like, wow, these are all rescues. Um, uh, that's part of our message part of what we're trying to get across. Second surprise, I would be how much they can actually score. Granted, we are playing a modified, simplified game of Puppy Bowl. <laughs> uh, human football has a rule book that is pages long. Our pages, our rules could fit on like one page. It's essentially score a touchdown, play a clean game. Um, but the amount of action and touchdowns that you'll get from these puppies is pretty, pretty remarkable. I mean, our scores are like, at the end of every Puppy Bowl, like, we only started keeping score eight years ago, but the, the scores were like 89 to 72. I mean, just ridiculous <laughs> football scores, but legitimate touchdowns that, that occur, uh, extra points and the like. So I guess that, you know, they are capable, which probably begs the question, like, you know, why aren't we doing more puppy sports? I mean, puppy soccer seems like a natural fit since they can kick. I understand puppy baseball wouldn't work, but, you know, puppy skating could work and we could go on and on. Gee. Oh, and the amount of penalties, you know, the amount of ways to the Eskimos have like 50 different words for snow. Right. Um, we have 50 different ways to see, say, you know, fouling the field or, you know, fertilizing the field or tinkle on the 20 or, you know, you can think of any other euphemisms you can. But um, puppies are inevitably going to. It's a green turf, soft, absorbent field. You better believe that when you <laughs> release a puppy, several of them onto a field, one of the first things they're going to do is christen it. So um, <laughs> we have to pick our battles. You know, we can't just say, oh, foul, you know, foul again. Like, we just have to turn a blind eye. But if it's particularly egregious, you know, turd in long, that was our one from this past year when there's a number two. We get creative with penalties. So I guess that's the other surprise is how many different <laughs> ways can you think <laughs> <laughs> to say, you know, the, the natural uh, occurrences that puppies will give you. So, Dan, we uh, also heard that you actually worked for Discovery as an intern or as an assistant at one point. How did this, how did you get the best job in the world? Like, I thought I had the best job in the world, but you win. Can you set the record straight here? I mean, isn't that nuts? Like, I graduated college and my first job out was as a paid intern for Discovery, um, which I thought was like, you know, striking gold because now interns are never paid as far as I know. Um, but yeah, so 
it was working in production. They never thought of me as talent, nor did I even think of myself as talent. And I use talent loosely. Then I started to work, you know, a little bit more my way up the ladder as a producer, went to work for Viacom, MTV, did, all, did everything I needed to do there. The timing was right in 2000. Let me see. This is my 12th year. Quick math. Uh, yeah, 11, 2010. They needed a puppy bull ref. As a big fan of both dogs and sports, I thought this was a natural fit. Granted, there's no blueprint for this job. So they asked me to make an audition video. Um, so I just officiated myself, uh, uh, you know, found random dogs to officiate myself, videoed it, cobbled it together to a, into a reel, and they bought it. And the rest is history. They had a ref up until I started. Um, let's see. So I started Puppy Bowl 8. They had a guy as a ref, but he was, um, he was more of just like a prop. Like, you know, he didn't talk much. He wasn't. And they realized, look, with all these adoptable dogs, and when Puppy Bowl started, they had half the amount of adoptable dogs. Now it's, as you know, 120. They realized we need a spokesperson because obviously dogs can't talk yet. We're working on it in our lab. <laughs> But in the meantime, somebody's got to speak for them, get their stories out the way I'm getting them out for you guys, um, about guys like Joey and Bumble. And that's where the ref came in. And since it is near and dear to my heart, I guess to circle back to your earlier question, that is where I get emotional when I talk about these guys after the fact um, and seeing them get adopted out after the fact. But um, it's all business on the field. And uh, I'm really grateful for it. Dan, thank you again so much for your time. We really appreciate it. And we are so excited to see the Puppy Bowl. When uh, When is that going to be again? <laughs> yeah, it's Sunday, February 12th, 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. You can also stream us. Uh, we're going to be on, man, uh, HBO Max, Discovery Plus. It's a pretty exciting year for us. It's going to be fantastic. I cannot wait to watch. Very cool. Thank you. Thanks so much, Dan. All right, got something crazy that has apparently happened about 200 times in the last 300 years. So get this. We're talking about spontaneous human combustion. No. Do you think it is real? <laughs> Do you believe in spontaneous human combustion? No, what? That's, that is such a vague question. Like, first <laughs> off, first off, 200 times seems like a lot of bodies just randomly bursting into flames. I mean, it does if they were, like, all together and all at once. But this is mm -hmm. individuals over 300 years. Like, there have been more shark-related deaths in the last 50 years. And Okay, but let's be clear. Sharks really don't kill that many people. Well, that's my point. That's not actually—given how many people there are, that's not actually that many. Okay. So keeping that in mind, what spontaneous combustion lacks in sheer numbers, it does make up with its dramatic stories. For example— sure. Going back to 14th century Italy, a knight named Polonus Vorstia, Vorstius, I can't pronounce, okay, my 14th century Close Italian enough. is very bad. <laughs> Vorstius, uh, he, he drank wine one night before apparently suddenly bursting into flames. And for many years, it was believed that his body had reacted negatively to wine because of something with his obesity and intestinal gases. Whatever it is, science doesn't really support that hypothesis. More mm -hmm. recently, for another example, back in December of 2010, a 76-year-old man burned to death on his living room floor in Ireland. And a year later, the coroner concluded that he had died of spontaneous human combustion, which proved to be a pretty controversial ruling because when it comes to whether spontaneous combustion is real, the answer is a bit more complicated than you might think. How is it complicated to tell whether or not people are bursting into flames or not? 
Well, it all comes down to the word spontaneous, which implies that people are just exploding into a fireball at random. Yeah. The, the truth is that people can burst into flames, but it's never at random. <laughs> okay, sure. I mean, listen, you and I have actually set ourselves on fire before. So, I mean, I know it's possible, <laughs> but how does this happen without an external source? For any of our listeners who don't know, Callie and I used to host a YouTube channel together, setting <laughs> yeah, ourselves probably on needed fire, some explanation. <laughs> igniting small amounts of controlled fire in our hands for the most part, with the occasional accident that went a little far. But as to the, the topic we're talking about here, we're, we're talking about something called the wick effect. The wick effect proposes that humans burn in a similar manner as candles, that fat on human bodies can act as a flame fuel source. And fat burns at a relatively low temperature, but a pretty high speed. So it could be fast enough to seem spontaneous if something were to catch a person on fire. Sure. Why? <laughs> All right. So you know how if you have a, a really small thing that's on fire and you throw gasoline on it, it's going to burst into flames, big old fireball. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of the same concept. Humans, we are covered in hair and usually clothing, which can act similar to the wick of a candle. Back in 1998, some UK scientists wrapped a dead pig in a blanket and then lit it on fire. And what? after <laughs> Well, that needs more explanation. <laughs> they were testing this idea. They they wrapped okay, it in a blanket, okay. they lit it on fire, and after the pig burned to ashes, all that was left were its feet. And this is the exact same thing that we see in every reported instance of spontaneous human combustion. Pigs and humans share a lot of similarities in, in how their skin and subcutaneous fat are layered. And so they thought this could be a good model for a burning person. So you're saying that all of these stories about spontaneous human combustion, are they real? They they probably are, but they're probably missing some important details because with even okay. the smallest bit of scrutiny, you can find that almost every alleged instance of spontaneous human combustion is linked back to some kind of external flame source. So we're talking a, a knocked over lamp or candle or a lit cigarette left unattended. And this wick effect gives off the impression of spontaneous combustion because these fires don't even leave behind a skeleton in most cases. For example, there's a case of a man who was wrapped in a blanket on a cold night and he was drinking alcohol to keep himself warm, which doesn't really work, but he <laughs> he spilled his alcohol onto a lit cigarette, which accelerated the flames across his entire body. Again, he's wrapped in a blanket and this creates an ignition effect that makes him start to burn and makes him combust. Interesting. Okay. And your feet usually tend to have less fat, so that could be why they're left behind? Yeah, I mean, hands have less fat too, but those are more likely to get burnt due to the proximity to other burning parts of the body. The truth is, human combustion can very much happen, especially if there's an unfortunate mix of alcohol and external flame and something to act as a wick. But spontaneous human combustion is an urban legend, and despite the number of stories, it's pretty unlikely to even be a real thing. Well, I mean, I guess that's one less thing I have to worry about at night. <laughs> Whatever, Callie. I know about your smoking and heavy liquor while wrapped in blankets habit. <laughs> oh, no, you caught me. It'll be the death of you.
Okay, we all know cancer sucks. (laughs) But thankfully, cancer deaths have actually gone down by 33% since 1991. Mm, 33%'s not a bad reduction. I mean, Mm -mm. if you had 100 people in a room and 33 of them left, you would think the room felt pretty empty. It actually gets even better when you start looking at all of the facts. In 2023, it's projected there will be nearly 2 million new cancer cases and over 600,000 cancer deaths in the United States. Bear with me. That's not good news. I know. That's devastating. But the American Cancer Society has stated that nearly 4 million cancer deaths have been averted since 1991. Okay. Yeah, that that is better news. 4 million is a good chunk of people. I, mean, I was talking about 33 <laughs> yeah, feeling exactly. like it happens. Four million. Yeah, that's huge. <laughs> what changed? What has happened that helped that to occur? Well, for nearly three decades, the American Cancer Society has been pushing for three simple steps to reduce cancer. Uh, number one, provide better means of early detection. Two, provide better and more accessible treatment. And then step three, and this is the one that some people will struggle with, and they really need to do it on their own, quit smoking cigarettes, or better Mm. yet, don't start smoking them at all. All three of these things have actually happened in huge numbers, to the point that back in 1991, the cancer death rate was 215 per 100,000 people. By 2019, it dropped to 146 per 100,000 people. Okay, that's, yeah, I mean, that's moving in a great direction. Um, We've talked before on the show about cancer and how it's not a one-size-fits-all disease. There's lots of varieties and types and treatments are different for every different thing. But are we seeing this kind of reduction across the board, like for all cancers or just some? Okay. Uh, When we look back at the data from a distance, the answer to that question is kind of a mixed bag. For instance, uh, between 2012 and 2019, there was a massive 65% drop in cervical cancer incidence from women in their early 20s. Researchers credit the drop with the introduction of the human papilloma virus vaccine, also known as the HPV vaccine, and say that these numbers are probably going to foreshadow drops in other HPV-associated cancers. On the other hand, and I'm sorry, a little bit of bad news, some other cancers have seen a bit of a resurgence in recent years. Oh, so overall improving, but some getting worse. All right, which, which ones are getting worse? For starters, cervical cancer rates may be dropping, but they're not for Hispanic women who saw a massive rise in cancer rates over the same period. Researchers aren't 100% sure why, but they think it's due to the lack of cervical cancer screening due to being born outside of the U.S. or not having access to health care. And they're not just pulling that data out of thin air either. Women living in Puerto Rico have a 30% higher rate of cervical cancer cases when compared to Hispanic women who live in the mainland United States. Well, yeah, I, I get why not having access to care is going to be a bit of a problem. Is, is that the only one or it's the only one? No. It's the only one? There's no more? Uh-uh. Just that one? No. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. So another cancer on the rise is prostate cancer. Great. It was on a steady decline between 1991 and 2014, but began to slowly rise by nearly 3% by 2019. That number might not seem that huge until you look at the data along racial lines. Prostate cancer is over 70% higher for black men than white men, and prostate cancer deaths are two to four times higher than any other ethnicity. With other cancers, the racial divide is even more stark. 
Black women are overwhelmingly more likely to die of breast cancer than any other ethnicity, even though white women have higher rates of breast cancer. That sounds weird. Like, do we know why? That Yeah, that sounds weird. Like We got an idea. Okay. Yeah. What's the thought? The American Cancer Society believes the reasons are economic. Even though cancer screening is easier than it's ever been, it's still largely inaccessible for people in lower-income communities. But it got a whole lot worse during the COVID-19 pandemic, which created even more of a divide between people in their neighborhood clinics. All right. So we, initially we talked about that cancer is on the decline. We've got a couple of these that are not on the decline. How do we make all of them be on the decline? Well... More means to detect cancer early, more accessibility to treatment, and less smoking. (laughs) At least 42% of the new cancers projected in 2023 are possibly avoidable. 19% are smoking-related, and 18% are, as they say, caused by a combination of excess body weight, drinking alcohol, poor nutrition, and physical inactivity. On a personal level, the best somebody can do is take care of themselves. But on a macro level, there are solutions in the works that could benefit everybody and maybe help bring these numbers even lower. Okay. Well, I'm not trying to absolve people of personal responsibility. I do like the idea of having systems in place that will help everyone regardless of whether they are trying themselves or not. What are some of the systematic things that can be done or will be done to help bring the numbers lower? So this is actually something that I was really happy to hear about. Back in 2022, President Joe Biden announced that he was relaunching the White House's Cancer Moonshot Initiative and set his sights on reducing cancer deaths by at least 50% over the next 25 years. And reports like these have huge impacts on the research, trials, and treatments receiving funding. Good results inspire good funding. And the researchers firmly believe that, especially in this case, the results will translate into more evidence evidence-based practices in clinical and community settings. So, a little bit of hope on the horizon. Yay. Let's recap what we learned today to wrap up. Our guest Dan Schachner talked to us about being the official referee of this year's Puppy Bowl. Tune in this Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern on Animal Planet to watch the most adorable football game of your entire life. Despite what rock band Incubus might lead you to believe, it is not actually possible for the body to spontaneously combust into flames. What's interesting is that the body can act like the wick of a candle due to how quickly our fat can burst into flames. With the proper conditions, our bodies can quickly combust due to an external flame, but spontaneous, no-reason combustion? A total myth. There are few things more devastating than cancer in the world, but thankfully, cancer is in the midst of one of the steepest declines in history. Nearly 33% of all cancer cases are down across the board in the U.S., a medical breakthrough that is practically unheard of. Some cancer rates are stagnant or worse on the rise, but with recent breakthroughs in accessibility for cancer screening, this number could drop by an additional 50% in the next 25 years. Curiosity Daily is produced by Wheelhouse DNA for Discovery. You can find our show wherever you get podcasts, and we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Our Discovery executive producer is Christina Bavetta. Our Wheelhouse DNA executive producer is Cassie Berman. This show is hosted by us, Callie Gade and Nate Bonham. Our producer is Kiara Noni. Writing is done by Jed Bookout and James Lynch. Our researcher is Julia Schrader. Sound design, audio engineering, and editing by Nick Carissimi. I'm Nate Bonham. And I'm Callie Gade. We'll see you next week.